from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Belle Gunnis. Brynhild, Paul's daughter, Storseth, was born on November 11, 1859, making her a Scorpio in Selbu, Norway. So as we always do, let's see what was going on in that area at that time. In the 1800s, nearly one million Norwegians moved to North America, which was the second mass immigration in history other than Ireland. They mostly settled in the great open rural lands of Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Iowa. But for those that stayed, saw huge economic growth, largely due to high productivity in agriculture. The adoption of new structures and technology, along with the substitution to livestock production, made labor productivity in agriculture increase by nearly 150% between 1835 and 1910. They exported timber, fish, and maritime services, which saw huge growth rates as well. Norwegian ships freighted international goods all over the world at very affordable prices. But then, in the mid-1870s, Norway was hit by a depression for nearly 20 years. Their economy became stagnant, which sparked the exodus from Norway to North America. Their depression was mostly due to its dependence on the international economy, mostly the United Kingdom, which was at that time experiencing slower economic growth itself. Another reason for Norway's economy slowing was the international adoption of the gold standard, which Norway adopted in 1874. Going to the gold standard caused the appreciation of the Norwegian currency as gold became relatively more expensive compared to silver. And lastly, another cause for their depression was changing from sailing to steam vessels, which took a lot of time to do. Interesting fact, leprosy was also a bit of an issue for Norway through a bit of their history. A physician was given a grant to research the problem and it was him that represented the first initiative in a medical movement to help Norwegians. He saw that while leprosy was curable, there was a staggering number of people that just could not afford help. After this, there began a political movement that saw the opening of several hospitals dedicated to curing and caring for leprosy patients. 
Due to this, the Permanent Medical Commission of Ministry of Health was created in 1851. They had hypothesized that leprosy was inherited, so they began to isolate patients and their first and second generation offspring, sterilizing all of the male patients. They then wanted to create a national registry for all leprosy patients and their relatives. Norway's Public Health Act of 1860 was a consequence of the Industrial Revolution and was influenced by the European hygienic movement, which eventually led to the highly affordable health care that they have today. So, Bell's father was Paul Peterson Storseth, a farmer and a stonemason by trade, and her mother's name was Barrett Olsdotter. Paul was born in 1808 in Selbu, Sør-Trondelag, Norway, and grew up poor. Not much of anything else is known about his background. Barrett was born in 1870 in Selbu, Sør-Trondelag, as well. Even less is known about her background. What we do know is that the couple had their first child in 1842 when Paul was 34 years old and Barrett was 25. By the time they had Brynhild, who we know as Belle today, the couple were 51 and 42 years old, respectively. Much of my information came from, and according to the book, Hell's Princess, the mystery of Belle Gunnis, the family had little money. But Paul had a very tiny bit of land that he farmed to be able to support his family. He raised cows, sheep, and goats and grew just barely enough crops such as barley, oats, and potatoes to literally keep them from starving. But during the winter months, he had to supplement his income by working as a stonemason, and even then, the family on occasion would have to go live on public welfare. So the information on Brynhild regarding her early childhood is just nearly non-existent. What we do know is that all eight of the children were expected to do chores and help around their little plot of land for the benefit of everyone, and Brynhild was no exception. She milked the dairy animals, then churned it to make butter. She had to haul water to the house and help keep an ever-vigilant eye on the cattle. The family didn't have access to or possibly couldn't afford proper wood for their hearth, so she was sent out to collect as many dry twigs as she could get. It was said that some of the not-so-nice neighbors made fun of her. In June of 1874, when she was just 14 years old, she was confirmed at her Evangelical Lutheran Church. Being confirmed is just a ritual or a rite of passage, meaning you have deepened your relationship with God. As an infant, you have your baptism. Then when you are confirmed, you are basically, quote, confirming the promises made on your behalf at the time of your baptism. You are then a full member of the Christian community. Brynhild's pastor said that her religious knowledge was good, that she was diligent and above average compared to her peers. Also during her teens, she worked at a neighbor's dairy farm milking cows, and that neighbor described her as a, quote, diligent human being that in all ways behaved well. 
In the evenings, she would sit by the fire and knit mittens, caps, and other clothing items. And she always made the traditional star rose pattern that her region of the country was very well known for. And while the family rested in the evenings, someone would begin to tell stories about giant trolls that lived on human flesh, as well as Holdra, which was a keeper of the forest. It's an interesting folklore. Some said that Holdra was Odin's mistress and the mother of certain demigods and had a hollow back made of bark, a cow's tail, and would lure men into the forest to suck the life out of them to secure their own freedom. She was a seductress, kind of like a siren. Now, there is a story about Brynhild that when she was 17 years old, she became pregnant by the son of a rather wealthy local landowner. From the one picture I was able to find of her as a relatively young lady, she appeared to be fairly attractive. She certainly was not unpleasant to look at by any stretch of the imagination. But the boy had been using her, clearly, leading her on and had no intention of marrying her. So he got her alone and began to beat and kick her so savagely that she had a miscarriage. She was devastated. The boy got away with it because of his family and his family status, but not to worry. It wasn't long until he died from a mysterious stomach illness whose symptoms were quite similar to arsenic poisoning. People that knew her later stated that her demeanor changed after that, and at some point she decided she would immigrate to the United States as one of her older sisters had already as so many people did during this time. She continued to do farm work and saved up every penny for her trip. So that's literally all the information we have about Belle's childhood. So we'll work with what we have. Looking back at any childhood trauma, we just don't have enough of her early life to speculate. We know that they were very poor, but she was taught to work hard and again, The one picture I saw of her when she was fairly young, she looked perfectly healthy. There's no reports that any of the children were abused in any way. What we do have, though, is the story of her pregnancy, if it is a true story. Now, we all know that teenage pregnancy is generally not ideal, but back then, women got married and had babies younger than we do today. It's just how it was. We do know that she was not married, and that would have been quite scandalous. The boy that she was having the affair with was the son of a wealthy man, and I'm quite sure his father would not have allowed his son to be with a girl from such meager means. Regardless, the boy physically attacked her and she lost the baby. It is reasonable to assume that she was not only devastated at the loss of her baby, but also very angry and hurt at her lover for doing such a horrible thing. And we really don't know if the boy was poisoned with arsenic, but we do know he died shortly after from a stomach ailment of some kind. Whether or not his death was directly or indirectly caused by her, it was noted that her personality changed after the attack and the loss of the baby. So her deciding to move to the United States from Norway, following a sister who already had, sounds like she was looking for a fresh start. 
So in 1881, 22-year-old Brynhild Paul's daughter Storseth, having been invited by her older sister, immigrated to the United States. She traveled to the English port of Hull aboard the steamship Tasso. She most likely stayed below decks in steerage, just as most of the immigrants did, and the conditions during the voyage were horrible at best. Most people were seasick, severely seasick, and those that weren't would get sick from the smell of the vomit. The food was not great, and bathroom accommodations were... I mean, well, you can imagine. Once off that ship, she was taken by train to Liverpool, where she boarded another steamship headed to the United States. The boat to America was only slightly better than the one she had taken from Norway to England. But once Brynhild finally arrived in Chicago, she moved in with her sister and her sister's husband and took on a more American-sounding name, Bella Peterson, or Belle for short. She followed in the footsteps of many immigrant women and became a housekeeper and a servant. What wages she earned, she generally gave to her sister and brother-in-law to help pay her way. But this wasn't the life that Belle wanted. She wanted to become a woman of fortune and the boring, everyday, menial tasks of being a maid and a servant were just not going to cut it. As she walked the streets, as well as the very people who employed her, she saw the lavish shops filled with expensive items that she wanted for herself. Her sister later stated, quote, My sister was insane on the subject of money. She would do anything to get it. Unquote. As far as what Belle wanted in a husband, her sister said, quote, She never seemed to care for a man for his own self, only for the money or luxury he was able to give her. Unquote. Belle herself was described as being six foot tall and a strong, stout young woman. She met her first husband, Mads Ditlev Anton Sorensen, who was five years her senior in the department store that he worked at as a watchman. He was of strong Nordic stock, powerfully built, sporting a handlebar mustache, which was pretty fashionable for the time. They got married in March of 1884 when Bell was 25 years old in the Evangelical Lutheran Bethania Church. In her wedding photo, Bell posed proudly in her formal black dress. So, other than wanting to live the good life, it was said that Belle absolutely loved children and had a strong maternal instinct, concerned for the orphaned or abandoned child. She even went as far as to offer to care for children who were not cared for. This was most likely a byproduct of her seeming lack of being able to become pregnant with her husband in the early years of their marriage. Due to this, she heaped loads of love and affection to her sister's baby daughter, begging her sister to let her adopt the infant. And while her sister loved that Belle was so good to one of her children, she didn't want to let her baby go, understandably, and told Belle no. Belle was so upset that she barely spoke to her sister after that. 
But in 1891, Belle was finally able to adopt an infant girl named Jenny. Jenny was the daughter of some neighbors and friends of Belle's and Matt's. The wife was on her deathbed and Belle begged the dying mother to leave her her baby. The wife agreed and the father said that he was able to see his daughter frequently and that Belle and Mads were good to her, that the little girl was very happy. As the years went by, the biological father remarried and tried to get his daughter back, but Belle won custody. So Belle and Mads scraped up enough money to open a candy shop in an up-and-coming area with several other popular shops, but it failed to take off, much to the irritation of Belle as she watched their meager savings just dwindle away. A year later, a mysterious fire broke out in the candy store. No one had been around, of course, save Belle and her three-year-old daughter, Jenny. Witnesses saw Belle and her daughter come running out of the shop yelling, Fire! Fire! By the time the fire was out, the interior was destroyed. After an investigation, it was determined that it was an accident and the insurance paid the claim. She then sold the property but kept the money, which paid for them to move to the suburbs, and they bought a three-story house with bay windows in a respectable neighborhood. Then, for the next two years, they took in four more children that were thought to be orphaned or otherwise unwanted infants, and it's speculated she took them for a fee. This would bring the couple up to five children total and Belle was in her early 30s by this point. But not long after she began caring for them, two of the infants died. Caroline was five months old and Axel was three months old. The infant mortality rate for those days were pretty high. Um, one died from, quote, acute inflammation of the bowels, and the other hydrocephalus, or water in the brain. She collected a small amount of life insurance from the deaths. By this time, Belle's husband, Mads, had found a good job with the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad, bringing home a decent paycheck, when a man named Agnes Ralston, stating he was an agent and chief engineer of the Yukon Mining and Trading Company. Agnes said that they were hiring miners to work for up to a year in Alaska and were also paying the wives a small wage while the husbands were gone. Bell appealed to Mags, who signed on for the job. Bell and Mads took out a second mortgage on their home to make sure Mags had everything he needed to go gold mining in Alaska, both completely sure that he would strike it rich, but he was never called on to actually begin the job. So, Bell contacted a lawyer who found out the company was bust, that it had all been a sham. Mags, who had quit his railroad job, was forced to go back to the department store, and Bell saw that she was, yet again, stuck as a housewife of a low-earning husband. So on April 10th, 1900, firefighters were called to Bell's home, supposedly caused by a 
defective heating apparatus and the couple collected the insurance money. A few months later, the local physician was sent for by Bell, being told it was urgent. And once the doctor arrived, he was ushered into the couple's bedroom where Mads was, fully dressed and laying on top of their bed, dead. Now, Bell explained that Mads had been dealing with a severe cold and had returned home from work that morning, stating he had a horrible headache. She explained that she gave him some medicine to help his headache and left him to rest as she began making dinner. She stated she had gone up to check on him and found him dead. So, the doctor officially stated he had died from cerebral hemorrhage. Now, Mads had already had a life insurance policy on himself for $2,000, but he had also just recently purchased another one in the amount of $3,000 and was going to let the first one lapse. But on the day he died, both insurance policies were still in full effect and Bell was the sole beneficiary, being paid $5,000 which is the equivalent of around $145,000 today. Mads was buried next to the two infant children. Now, Bell took the money and bought a farm in LaPorte, Indiana. The farm itself had a sordid history with many former owners who were either Southern sympathizers during the Civil War, criminals, or mentally disturbed sort of a fitting place for a woman who had a series of unfortunate events. She and her three surviving children moved onto the farm in November of 1901. Belle was now 42 years old. Now, while she had been married to Mads, the couple were acquaintances with a man named Peter Gunnis. He was an attractive man of Viking blood with blue eyes and blonde hair. He too was an immigrant from Norway. He had been married, but his wife had died during the birth of their second daughter. Just before she had moved to the farm in Indiana, Belle made a point to visit Peter to tell him about her new farm. Now, while she was aging and had grown quite curvy as the years went by, It didn't stop Peter from wanting her, and the couple were married after the move to the farm in 1902. She was now Belle Gunnis. Five days after the wedding, Peter's youngest, now seven-month-old daughter, died from, quote, edema of the lungs. Nearly a year later, the Gunnis' neighbors, the Nicholsons, were awakened by Belle's now 12-year-old daughter, Jenny begging them to come to the house because her papa had burned himself. The husband and his older son went running to find Belle, inconsolable, sitting in the kitchen with her husband, Peter, face down in his pajamas on the floor, a pool of blood around him. The son ran to get the local doctor, who, after arriving at the farm, could tell that Peter had been dead for some time. You see, rigor mortis was beginning to set in. He observed a substantial bloody wound on the back of Peter's head and immediately believed that the man had been murdered. Not to mention that there were no burns anywhere, even though Jenny said that her papa had been burned. So Belle stated that Peter had gotten up that morning, 
walked into the kitchen to get his shoes, and as he bent over to pick them up, a heavy meat grinder had fallen off of a shelf and hit him in the back of the head. Then a pot of scalding water had been knocked off by the meat grinder and had poured on the wound. Bell had asked him, are you okay? And he stated that he was okay, and he went to lay down and rest. Then Bell found him later lying face down in the living room, dead. The doctor was suspicious, and the neighbor man and son both believed him to have been murdered. Peter's death made the cover of the local newspaper, where it was stated that it had, quote, strong indications of foul play. So an autopsy was done, where it was indicated that there were no burn marks on Peter's body at all, and that his nose was broken. There was a substantial laceration on the back of his scalp and on the skull. The skull itself had been fractured and there had been bleeding on the brain. This prompted an investigation and Bell was interrogated, along with Jenny. Both told the exact same story, which was somehow believable. Jenny was asked about Bell's first husband's death, to which she gave the same story Bell had nearly verbatim. Jenny was asked where they had gotten the money to buy the farm. Jenny replied that she didn't know. Most of her answers were, I don't know. The neighbors attested to seeing the couple rarely, but that they appeared to be affectionate toward one another. So, the result of the investigation was, surprisingly, that Peter had died from accidental injury but the townspeople were not so convinced. The rumors continued to circulate that Belle had killed her husband. Then, a few months after the investigation was concluded, a midwife had been summoned to Belle's farm to help her give birth. But when the midwife arrived, she found the baby had already been born, bathed, and dressed, and Belle was up and walking around. Another neighbor had heard of the new baby and came over quickly to see the infant, only to find Belle outside washing clothes. She, of course, scolded Belle, telling her that she should be resting after giving birth. And Belle replied, quote, In the old country, they never go to bed after they have a baby. This neighbor also remarked at how big the baby was for being a newborn. Now, Peter's brother, Gus, was highly suspicious of his brother's death, as well as Peter's youngest daughter, who was still a baby not long after his brother's marriage. So, of course, he was very concerned about the safety and well-being of his now five-year-old niece. He knew that Peter had had a life insurance policy for $2,500 that had been made out to the elder daughter, and he intended to make sure she received that money. Gus traveled to the Laporte farm from Minneapolis. He was happy to see that his niece was happy and healthy, but not so much when Bell told him that Peter had sold the life insurance to a mining company, and as the company became more profitable, his niece would get the benefits of that. Bell asked Gus if he'd like to stay on at the farm to help her, to which he declined. A few days after his arrival... Bell awoke to Gus being gone, having taken his niece with him. Gus later stated that every moment he was in that house, he was very uncomfortable. 
So no one could ever say that Bell was lazy. After Peter's death and, you know, air quotes, giving birth to her son, she took over the work of her late husband, planting and harvesting crops, milking cows, tending the pigs. She attended farm auctions in a man's coat and her husband's old boots, just walking around in the mud as the men did, instead of staying up off to the side near the stove where most of the women stayed. And when it came time to butcher a hog, well, she did all that by herself too. And I mean all of it. But she knew that she still needed help. In February 1904, 30-year-old Olaf Lindbo, a fellow Norwegian, saw a help wanted ad in a newspaper for a farm worker in Laporte, Indiana. He packed up, he headed for the farm, his entire life savings of $600 with him. Now granted, that's a lot of money for that time. Bell hired him immediately and within a shockingly short time, it was generally accepted that they were affianced, if you will. It was stated that Bell was kind to Olaf and Olaf took to managing the farm quickly. But it didn't take long for one of Bell's neighbors to be asked by Bell to help her with a job on the farm because Olaf had simply left in the middle of a big job that had to be completed. She told the neighbor that Olaf had traveled to St. Louis to the World's Fair with the hope of purchasing some land. But she had also told one of Olaf's friends that he had traveled back to Norway to, quote, see the new king of Norway crowned. When Olaf's father wrote to Bell to ask about his son, she said he had gone out west and had a homestead there. Now, all of these people were lied to. Olaf was still on the farm, but more on that later. The next year, Henry Gerholt arrived on the farm to work for Bell Gunness. A neighbor had noticed he had a rather large trunk with him. Henry wrote to his mother, speaking highly of the farm and how he was treated by the widow. For weeks, he was seen happily working on the farm. Then all of a sudden, he was gone. When asked, Bell said he had simply quit, stating he just wasn't strong enough for the work. She said he had gone to Chicago, leaving many of his possessions behind, including his large trunk. After this, Bell put out an advertisement that read, quote, Wanted. A woman who owns a beautifully located and valuable farm in first-class condition wants a good and reliable man as partner in same. Some little cash is required and will be furnished first-class security. Unquote. She also advertised herself in singles columns as well as matrimonial columns of all of the area newspapers. That advertisement read, quote, Personal, comely widow who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in Laporte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well provided with view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with personal visit. Triflers need not apply. Unquote. Suddenly, Bell was receiving many letters a day in response, according to the postman. 
It didn't take long for several middle-aged men with money to show up in response to her letter. One such man was John Moe, who came from Minnesota. He had brought with him enough money to pay off the remainder of her mortgage and then promptly disappeared after one week. Another suitor was George Anderson, also a native of Norway, from Missouri. He agreed to pay off her mortgage if they did decide to get married. Of course, we know her mortgage was already paid off. Late that night, while George slept in the guest room, Belle stood over him, watching him sleep. He woke up and later stated that the look on her face was so evil that a yelp escaped his throat and she left the room. He jumped out of bed and fled that house without even saying goodbye. And when he made it into Laporte, he got on the first train headed back to Missouri and did not return for his belongings. Over and over, suitors came with cash in hand and then disappeared. What was troubling was that Belle was also ordering and having delivered large trunks to her house. At one time, there were 15 trunks in her house and men's clothing stashed everywhere. She hired a local man to dig holes in a fenced off area that she had used as a hog pen. The man said he never knew what those holes were to be used for. In 1906, Belle's daughter Jenny had matured into a beautiful 16-year-old girl with blonde hair, gorgeous blonde hair, blue eyes, and flawless skin. Young men in the area definitely took notice. Jenny told one of their younger farmhands, as well as others, that her mother was sending her away to college in California just before Christmas. She wasn't crazy about going, but she understood. Then one day, that same young man came to the farm to work, and Jenny was already gone before she said she would be. So when he asked Belle where she was, Belle responded that Jenny had already left, though no one saw her leave. And keep in mind, in this town, clearly everybody sees everything. Now, during this time, Belle hired a farmhand by the name of Ray Lampier. He was completely smitten with her, nearly obsessed. Ray squandered any money that he made on booze, gambling, and prostitutes, and the townspeople thought of him as lazy, weak, and no good. It didn't take long for he and Belle to start sleeping together. She, this robust and large woman, and he, this slight, small man. Their scandalous relations were not lost on the other people. Of course, Belle, you know, often slept with the help. In December 1907, a bachelor from South Dakota named Andrew Helgeline wrote to her. Belle was delighted. The two sent letters back and forth until Andrew received this letter, which was found at Andrew's farm from Belle, and it was dated January 13, 1908. Quote, To the dearest friend in the world, no woman in the world is happier than I am. I know that you are now to come to me and be my own. I can tell from your letters that you are the man I want. 
It does not take one long to tell when to like a person. And you and I like better than anyone in the world I know. Think how we will enjoy each other's company. You, the sweetest man in the whole world. We will be all alone with each other. Can you conceive of anything nicer? I think of you constantly. When I hear your name mentioned, and this is one of the dear children speaks of you, or I hear myself humming it with the words of an old love song, it is beautiful music to my ears. My heart beats in wild rapture for you, my Andrew. I love you. Come prepared to stay forever. Unquote. And I know that the English is a little broken on that, but remember, English was not her first language. So after reading Belle Gunness's letter, Andrew Helgeline hurried to be by her side. Of course, Ray was enraged by this. Andrew brought his life savings with him, and after only a few days, well, Andrew disappeared. In fact, Ray hated the men that continued to show up to the farm seeking the affections of Belle and to take over her farm. He began to rebel and act out, so she fired him in February 1908. She then went to the Laporte County Courthouse and stated that Ray was not in his right mind and was a danger to the public. This attempt to keep Ray away didn't work, though, so Belle went back a few days later and spoke to the sheriff, saying that Ray had come to the farm and threatened her family, successfully getting Ray arrested for trespassing. Now, realizing Ray was an actual real threat to her, mostly because he knew exactly what had happened to the many men that had come to that farm, she contacted a lawyer in Laporte and said she feared for her and her children's lives. Bell stated Ray had threatened to murder her and burn down her house. She and her attorney made out her will and she left everything to her children. Bell then promptly hired a man by the name of Joe Maxson to replace Ray. So during this time, Bell was receiving letters from Andrew's brother asking about where his brother was. She started out replying that she too would like to know where Andrew was. And then she would spin quite the story of how Andrew had left in search of yet another brother who was a professional gambler. She said that he said he was going to search in Chicago and then in New York. And then she later said that he might have gone back to Norway. She said if she heard anything, she would definitely let him know. Also during this time, Ray was on trial for the trespassing and other things she had accused him of, and the fact that Bell was trying to have him declared legally insane. During the trial, Bell was increasingly scrutinized for the untimely deaths that seemed to happen around her. Her attorney fought hard to have questions about her past stopped as they did not pertain to the case regarding Ray and how Bell believed he was a danger to society. Bell was then asked when her daughter Jenny would be returning home from college. Her attorney had the question stricken from the record. By the end of the court proceedings, Bell was visibly shaken. It was during that trial that Bell realized just how aware everyone in that area was of the strange disappearances of people around her, on top of the letters that she was continuing to receive from Andrew's brother, and she felt that she would soon be caught. 
So, a woman who worked in a dry goods shop that Bell shopped in frequently stated that after that, Bell had come in always looking very stressed out. The woman asked Bell, What's wrong? And Bell continued to say that it was Ray's harassment of her and was overwhelming, and that she felt he was going to lie about her and say that he knew things about her that weren't true. Bell said that she was terrified that Ray was going to burn her and her children alive in her own home. But then, of course, Bell bought a large amount of groceries, along with two gallons of kerosene. So not long after that, on April 27, 1908, Bell kept her children home from school. That night, Joe, Bell, and the kids played games in the living room, and when Joe went up to bed, he said Bell was still spending quality time with her children. The next morning, he woke up in the early hours, smelling smoke in his second floor room. He opened the door to a wall of flames. He screamed for Bell and her children, but he got no response. He jumped from the second story window of his room, did everything he could do to get back into the front of the house to save Bell and the children, but he saw that he couldn't. And of course it didn't take long for the neighbors to notice the fire and all come running to do what they could do to help, but it was too late. The farmhouse ultimately had burned to the ground. Now, once officials could go inside what was left of the farmhouse, they immediately knew the fire had been intentionally started. Some believed Bell had started it out of maybe being depressed due to Ray's harassment that she had just given up, you know. But others believed that Ray himself was the one who started the fire. That afternoon, they found four very badly burned bodies. It appeared that Bell had the children with her and had attempted to escape the fire, their bodies all piled together, but the adult female's body had been decapitated and the head was never recovered, making it impossible to be 100% certain that that was actually Bell's body. Ray was quickly located and he immediately denied having any involvement in the fire. However, a witness came forward to say that he had seen Ray near Bell's farm that night. But then again, a woman stated that Ray had been with her overnight. The body of the decapitated woman was perplexing. Many people, including neighbors and acquaintances, viewed the corpse and all said that it was definitely not Bell's. The medical examiner measured the charred remains and, you know, taking into account the missing head length and so on, stated that the body was a woman who was 5 foot 3 inches tall and weighed 150 pounds. Now everyone that knew her or even saw her, as well as the tailor who made her dresses, swore that Belle was every bit of 6 foot tall and weighed between 180 and 200 pounds. Measurements of the body were compared with those on file with several Laporte stores where she purchased her clothing. The authorities concluded that the decapitated woman could not have been Belle Guinness. In fact, the internal organs were studied and it was found that they had lethal levels of strychnine in them. The case of Belle Guinness got infinitely more interesting when the local dentist said that the false teeth found by the woman's body were most definitely Bell's. 
At this point, a man was hired to sift through the debris, concentrating on the areas where the holes had been dug in the pig pen to see if anything else could be recovered. And what they found shocked the town and the nation. Three more children's bodies were unearthed, two of which were Bell's children. Then they began to dig and search all around the farm, only to find many of the missing suitors. Most of the human remains found could not be identified, save one, Bell's daughter, Jenny. They found her remains chopped up into pieces, identified only by her blonde hair that had survived interment with her bones. People who had known Jenny positively identified her remains. So, Jenny had in fact not been sent to college. She had been buried in a hole in a pig pen. She was found on what would have been her 18th birthday. People would ride the train into Laporte and go running to the farm to watch as they pulled body after body out of the ground. It became such a spectacle, people began actually selling refreshments to the onlookers. So back in the early 1900s, they simply didn't have the forensic tools that we have today. And because of this, the exact number of individuals unearthed on the Gunnis farm is unknown. Ray Lampier was ultimately found guilty and sentenced to 20 years, but he died from tuberculosis soon after. But as he lay on his deathbed, Ray insisted that Belle Gunnis had murdered all of those people and that she was still alive. He stated that Belle would welcome the men into her home, cook them a meal, drug their drink, then split their heads wide open with a meat cleaver. She would then drag the bodies down to the basement where she would dismember them and then, depending on her mood, she would feed them to the pigs or bury them in the pig pen with or without quicklime. He was also able to answer the question about the headless body. He stated that Bell had hired a woman from Chicago to be her maid just before the fire. Bell drugged the woman, killed her by bludgeoning her, and then removed her head, throwing it, weighted down, into deep water. She then chloroformed her own children and smothered them. Bell dressed the female corpse in her clothing, removing her own false teeth and putting them beside the headless corpse to have it identified as Bell. She and Ray then set fire to the house and fled. Lampier admitted he had helped her, but she ultimately betrayed him, leaving him to face the crime. There were sightings of Bell off and on throughout the years, but nothing concrete. Then in 2008, a forensics team from the University of Indianapolis exhumed Bell's remains in hopes of identifying the remains as hers or not, once and for all, but the sample was not viable. So, it is thought that Bell murdered at least 14 people based on bodies recovered, but most believe the number to be closer to 40 as bits of bone fragments were found that didn't go with any of the other remains, which would be consistent with her feeding people to her pigs. She was an active but undetected serial killer for 24 years. Her weapon of choice was poison, 
which is fairly typical of most female serial killers, but what is not very typical of female serial killers was that she dismembered her victims. But what do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram at serial underscore killing or YouTube under the same name as this podcast. You can visit my website at serialkilling.squarespace.com and also consider sponsoring this podcast. It takes many, many hours and a lot of work to gather this info, although I love it. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate each of you, as I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. Have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.